Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Emiliano Cargiaman. He goes by EK as well. He's the CEO of Satellogic. Satellogic has launched 17 commercial low-orbit satellites just in the last year. Emiliano, welcome to World of DAS. Hi, Oren. Thank you for having me. It's great oh. to be here. Now, you're a proponent of this kind of the LEO, the low Earth orbital satellites. These satellites, they move really fast relative to the Earth. I think the orbit like every 90 minutes or so. Like, right. what are some advantages of being so low Earth orbit? Right. So we're trying to take high resolution pictures of the planet, yep. right? So, so just when the closer, to, the better? The closer you are, okay. right? the All closer right. you are, the higher the resolution that you can get okay. with the same lens, with the same yeah. lens, basically, right? So it pays to be close. Now, you have to be in orbit because when you're in orbit, you know, you're constantly falling and missing the Earth. And that allows you to keep the satellite around orbiting the Earth every 90 minutes and just remap, you know, the planet. But but as long as you are in orbit, you know, the closer you can be to the Earth, the better resolution you're going to get with the same satellite, right? So that's the biggest advantage. Got it. Now, is there a sense where you could be even like lower, but it would be going too fast? Or what is there? Is there some sort of sweet spot? At some point, so there are trade-offs, right? But at some point, you know, there's still a little bit of atmosphere there, right? The atmosphere doesn't completely disappear, but, you know, so the atmosphere, the little molecules of air here and there will slow you down over time, Mm. right? And actually the solar pressure, just the photons hitting on your satellite will push you down. And so after a while, you deorbit, right? If you're flying, you know, at Okay, so if you're low Earth, your satellites just, they're not going to be in orbit as long right. as if you're higher orbit or something like that. Right. Okay. So at some point, you know, you'll deorbit in the day, right? So it's not, yep. it's no use, right? It's a lot of CapEx for, for the yep. day, right? So that's kind of a trade-off. You want to be there long enough that you can repay the CapEx and, you know, close to the Earth enough that you can take really good pictures. Now, I guess it's like, if you're going super fast around the Earth, like taking images at, at that speed is somewhat more challenging you may have like, you know, lots of different issues with shadows and other types of things. Like how have you approached it? Yeah, that, that's really the difficult thing about imaging the Earth from orbit is exactly that. Is you're going super fast, right? The satellites are moving at 27,000 kilometers an hour, right? So yeah. 16,000 miles an hour. So the ground is moving relative to you at a very high speed, right? Like around seven kilometers per second. So imagine, wow. you know, okay. you're... You know, imagine you're sitting next to a Formula One race with your camera in your hand, right? You're trying to take a picture of the moving cars, right? They, this is very similar, right? Cars are going super fast. You're yeah. trying to take this picture. You know, if, if you take a long exposure that, you know, so that you have enough signal to noise that the picture is well exposed, you know, it looks well, the cars are going to be a blur. And you have the same problem from orbit, right? You take a long exposure. The ground is all going to be a blur. So if you take a very short exposure, you know, okay, the car might not be blurred or the ground might not be blurred, but, you know, you're going to have very few photons. The image is going to be very dark. The signal to noise is going to be very bad. So this trade-off between signal to noise and a picture that has no blur is really the big, big, difficult problem to solve from low Earth orbit to collect imagery. And is there, so is there like some sort of machine learning stuff where you clean the picture up afterwards or? That could be an approach, yeah. you know, post-processing imagery could be an approach. This is an approach that other companies have taken in the past. The problem with that is you cannot do it over one image. You need to take a series of images to post-process and remove that blur and increase the signal to noise. And because of sampling, you actually need to take kind of 
you always improve the signal to noise by the square root of the number of images you use, right? So if you want to improve the signal uh, to noise by a factor of four, you need 16 images, right? If you yep. need to improve by a factor of five, you need 25 images. So suddenly, you know, the amount of data that you have to download to get one good image starts to overwhelm your downlink capacity, yep. your processing storage capacity. Traditional satellites solve this problem in a different way, right? They put this very, very large telescopes in orbit, this very large apertures. And, you know, you might have seen these guys next to a Formula One race actually that have this you know huge lenses mm -hmm. that look like a big dish right and you're like what's this guy doing with a big big lens like that right and what they're trying to do is they're trying to do a very get, short get exposure. the light in quickly right and get in photons you know the aperture of the telescope is like a funnel if you make it big enough you get enough photons that you can do a very short exposure and get a good picture right so that's an approach that's the approach that traditional industry has taken to this problem so when you look at maxar satellites digital globe satellites you know the traditional players in our industry, the, the big government-owned and operated satellites, they take this approach. They put these very large apertures in orbit, you know, a meter and a half wide, two meter wide, whatever. Yeah. And they point them to the ground. Now, that's a and great that's obviously solution. very heavy. It's, a, it's expensive to put up, right? Okay. Extremely so expensive, capex. right? Yeah. This is why the satellites cost $800 million, right? Not because yeah. they're, you know, they're stupid. No, they, they know what they're doing, right? But it's just very expensive to do these things, right? So when you're trying to do this from a small satellite, like we are doing, you have to figure out how to solve this problem. And what we did, this is kind of the core of our technology, but what we did is we figured out a way to solve this problem that has no drawbacks, basically, that allows us to collect data continuously from a small satellite, from a small aperture that is well exposed and it has no blur. And this uses some adaptive optic tricks, but it's really the key of what we've been able to, to build over the last few years. We, we built this camera initially in 2014. We tested it in orbit for the first time. And we've been building our satellites with this technology ever since. And this is really what allows us to make very, very small satellites that collect so a lot of data. Ways you think of yourself more as a camera company than a satellite company or something? Or <laughs> Yeah, we think ourselves as a data company. Okay. So I'm happy, I'm happy we're, we're here to talk to you. Then. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we have our own data sets that we capture with our own hardware, right? Like we're a completely vertically integrated, if you want, data company. Interesting. Now, I know your cost of like building, deploying, and launching a satellite is like, let's say roughly a million dollars. I mean, you mentioned some of these other satellite companies where, you know, they were, let's say, closer to like a billion dollars. We're talking a you know, massive mm -hmm. difference. You know, this does seem like a low, pretty low price. And even though also, I know all satellite prices are coming down and there's a lot of other companies that are doing that. Like, how do you see this cost curve changing even more over the next five years? Or do you think we've kind of hit that inflection point? Okay, it's it's going to come down very, very gradually from now on. Or do you think you can go from like a million dollars to a hundred thousand dollars? Right. So first, if you think about what we're doing, there's two things that are core to everything. The first one is the camera that I mentioned. This is not necessarily reflected on the cost of the satellite, but what this allows us to do is to capture. 10 times more data with any of our satellites that you can capture with any other small satellite, just because yep. we can collect data continuously, right? On top of that, we have this, you know, satellite cost or bill of materials is around $500,000, right? And we can put the satellites in order for around a million. And if we were out to go to the market, right, and buy best of breed pieces in the market today to build our own satellite design, right? If I go and buy the computers and I go and buy the telescopes from somewhere else and I go and buy the reaction wheels and all the different things that go into a satellite. Today, we'll probably be paying around seven to $8 million in bill of materials. Right? Okay. With best you of have pieces. to do it yourself, essentially. When we started doing it 10 years ago, we would have paid maybe $20 million, 
right? Yep. For the bill of okay. materials. So it's coming down. Like for us, it's not, right? Because we're completely yep. vertically integrated. Yep. What we did is we're taking, you know, supply chains from the automotive industry and the consumer electronics industry. And we're using those things to build satellites. So we don't have those issues, right? So for satellites themselves, I think the, the supply chains are getting cheaper. For us, you know, we're at a price point, which we think is, is kind of the right price point, a little bit like with your phone or your notebook, right? It makes sense for you to spend, you know, whatever, $1,500 on a notebook, right? And you're going to yep. change it in a couple of years. You expect you're going to be roughly the same. What's going to happen is just the notebook is going to be better. Yeah. So you're going to have right? a better camera, better. So it's, it's not really about, at this point, you don't need to drive the cost from a million dollars to $100,000. You just want every year to have a better better version of that of that million dollar satellite essentially that's that's correct we basically put satellite hardware into a moore's law kind of curve right where we can double the capacity that we get out of the satellites for the same cost every 18 months right and and we have a roadmap to continue to do this into the future but we don't expect that we need to go to hundred thousand dollar satellites right yeah because in the end we just need to put 200 of this in orbit and keep them there right doesn't no, so, not- some some of the price of the satellite is the launch cost right it's a it's a particular large and and the launch cost price have been coming down over time obviously companies like spacex have been have been putting pressure on it do you see that like at the kind of a steady state or do you think it's just going to like maybe slowly, gradually get get a little bit lower? Or do you think there's going to be another step function making the launch cost lower? I think if SpaceX is successful or when SpaceX is successful with Starship, there is going to be another step down in cost, right? We're going okay. to go from, you know, the $5,000 per kilogram we're paying today to maybe $500 per kilogram, right? Like, oh, wow. The, oh, that's a huge step down in cost. Okay. That's, a, that's the promise, you know, of, of SpaceX Starship working, right? It's like yep. a really order of magnitude reduction in cost per kilogram to orbit, right? That's, I think, the only project I see out there that realistically can get there in the next few years in terms of cost, right? There are, of course, a lot of small launcher companies, you know, people building new vehicles, and there are other advantages to having small launchers and, you know, the flexibility that those give you. But in terms of price per kilogram, you know, in the near future, at least, that seems to be the, the one. And then farther down the line, I think, yeah, I think you can think of a future where we go to $100 per kilogram in launch cost and maybe even below that. And that will definitely, you know, make other space companies possible, right? I mean, a lot of what we can do today is just based on the cost of putting mass in orbit, right? For something to make sense or, you know, for a business model to close or not to close, right? So when we think about an order of magnitude lower cost and launch, that's going to enable companies that are just not viable today, right? So that's very exciting. And what's the life of a current, well, one of your satellites today is, is, how do you think about it? You think, okay, there's like a three-year lifespan and then we'll replace them over time. Or how do you think through that? Yeah, that's, that's exactly correct. We build them for a three-year lifetime. We actually, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that the satellites, at some point, they deorbit naturally, right? So, yep. or satellites, if we don't keep them in orbit, they will deorbit naturally after a year, right? So we actually use our propulsion system to keep them in orbit for three years. And okay. after that, we just let them decay and burn down in the atmosphere. So for us, it's about, you know, we want to replace this technology every, you know, every three years. We want to replace a third of our constellation in orbit every year. And when you look at the trade-offs, you know, you could design easily design the same satellite to live six years in orbit, but it will probably cost you twice what it costs us to do it, right? Yeah. It would probably be $2 million and live six years. Well, I'd much rather, you know, replace yep. a satellite with a new generation in three years and it's just better all around. 
Yeah. Okay. That that makes a lot. Now I know the you guys have launched about seventeen satellites, commercial satellites in in the last year, and that that's a pretty nice constellation already. I think you can collect like over four million square kilometers of data daily, which is really really cool. But I heard you're going to try to expand your constellation to get to over three hundred, let's say in the next four years, which is kind of like an incredible growth. Like, what's the plan to getting there? So we just like we those- need to raise a whole bunch more money, or what's like, <laughs> like, or is there, so, or and that's the only limiting factor, or some other core limiting so, factors? So the good thing is now we're funded to do that, so that's not a limiting factor. So in terms of rolling out, just rolling out the satellites. Today, we have our pilot manufacturing facility has a capacity to do up to 24 satellites per year, right? Yeah. And so, got this, so you got, dude, that's a limiting factor today. This, okay, year got, yeah. we're, this year, we'll be basically doubling our constellation in orbit. But at the same time, we're building a new high throughput facility in the Netherlands where we will be able to do 100 satellites per year, right? So 24, 25 satellites per quarter. And that's going to be fully operational at the end of this year. So into 2023, we expect to be launching a lot more satellites. We've reviewed the total number of satellites that we need to put out because we've improved a little bit the camera design. This is part of, you know, of kind of being able to iterate on this generation. So we don't need to get to 300 to realize our vision of remapping the entire Earth every single day in high resolution. We need to get to a little bit over 200. But the plan is still the same. By 2023, we expect And, and to be- the extra 100 is really just for fail-safe or for, you know, in case something goes wrong or as, as insurance or, or why have an extra 50% if Since you don't I think- it? Since you saw those numbers that we published in July, we've actually improved on the technology. So what we were doing with 300, we can now do with a little uh, bit over got it. Okay, got it. So 200 <laughs> so maybe is the max just, you need. Okay, got just it. Just okay. saving on capital. So the plan is still the same for us. By 2023, we expect to be remapping all of the earth, every single square meter of the earth every week at 70 centimeters of resolution. And by 2025, we expect to be remapping the entire surface of the earth every single day at 70 centimeters of resolution, right? And, and that's kind of the, the goal. Then we're going from 70 centimeters of resolution down to 40, a little bit over 40 centimeters. And, and that, um, that just, requires a better camera and, and some other things? Or, what or, flying, or flying the satellites a little bit lower, maybe. Okay, and then us, maybe the right? satellites don't last as long or some. Okay, got it. Okay, got yep. it. So as you have a higher throughput of the number of satellites you could build, if you're building 100 a year and you only need 200, then maybe they only need to be in orbit for two years. Or Okay, got it. Okay, so that makes sense. Interesting. Yeah, at that point, really, it's also about, you can understand that it's also about the ability to download, process the petabytes of data that we will be generating every year, right? Because, yeah. you know, the, the Earth is 150 million square kilometers of land, right? Land yeah. mass, if you don't take the oceans. When we're remapping the Earth at 70 centimeters of resolution every week, we're generating around 250 petabytes of data a year that we need to- And how do you download that effectively? Because the satellite's moving super fast. So how do you get that to a ground station quickly? So we're currently using ground stations both in close to the North Pole and close to the South Pole, right? The satellites are going from pole to pole, orbiting the Earth from pole to pole. Yep. What basically means they're over the North Pole or the South Pole Roughly every 45 minutes, they're over one of the poles, right? So we use ground stations that are close to the poles. Basically, what, is, have- is that because of they're closer to the Earth at that given time? Or why do, why do you do it at the South Pole as opposed to doing it Just, in, you know, in Brazil or something? 
because your satellites are orbiting the Earth, but the Earth is spinning under you, right? So, ah, so, gotcha. so, the, so those are always where it's always going to hit that place. Okay, that right. makes so sense. Okay, you always hit the poles, but if you are, I don't know, you put your ground station in in the Amazon, you're right. only going to hit it once every, you know, three times per day, right? Instead yep. of fifteen times per day. Yeah, that's different. So every time you're on top of a ground station, you're on top of the ground station for maybe ten minutes that you have a good connection. To the satellite, and you use those ten minutes. You know, have and, a radio. And, and, sorry, and one, one thing I, I I don't totally understand. So, why are you going pole to pole rather than like going other routes around the Earth? Like, why is there an advantage of going pole to pole? I think there's two advantages. One is precisely because it allows you to put ground stations in places where you can have a lot of visibility to the satellites every day. That's one. And yeah. the other one is you actually get to put the satellites in an orbit that is synchronized to the sun. And in a way that allows you to get the same kind of lighting conditions every time you're taking imagery, which is particularly good for an imaging constellation, right? We're yes. always going over the same point in land at the same local time, roughly every day with the same satellite, right? Which means we know what the lighting is going to look like. You know, we know how much, you know, where the shadows are going. And it's to important be. that it's the same satellite because each satellite may have a different version of a camera and you have to do different tricks to do that. Or why is it important that it's the same satellite going over the same point? Oh, no, it's not important. I think every okay. satellite goes over and, you know, we then have to, of course, for all the imagery, we then have to reprocess them and, you know, unify them so that we're always giving the same like, compatible data to customers and not something different depending on the satellite it came from, right? even if we have different versions. Interesting. Now, your your customers obviously want you to succeed, but satellites is an intensively capital business. Like, do they help like essentially prepay for the development? Because I, I you know, like you're definitely your customers have an incentive to want you to be around for, you know, for a really long time and to help them. So how do you work with them to basically fund like the long-term health of the business? So I think they're, you know, when we think about our customers, I will divide them in two different groups, right? Today, we're selling in what is the what I call the existing Earth observation market, right? The, the market that exists today, people are buying satellite imagery every day. And this is mostly governments, right? The yep. reality is high resolution imagery. It's currently bought mostly for security, for defense and intelligence, you know, by governments. And yep. so this is the existing market. And then, but the market we're really going after, and this is what we can bring to this industry that is very unique, is because we're going to be the first company in a position to remap the entire earth every week in high resolution, then every day, we can start delivering this data to every potential customer around the world, basically at zero marginal cost, yeah. right? Because we will have a complete catalog of the entire earth. So yeah. serving you don't have customer, to give them. You don't have to give them today's data. You can give them data from you know, they could pay a little bit less for two weeks ago or two months ago's data, and maybe they're happy with that or something. Right. But the reality is today, when I have to serve a customer, I have to point a satellite to their target. Yep. That carries a huge opportunity cost with it. It's like, you know, it's yep. like with- You have to reposition other, or, okay. Yep. Yeah. Just point the camera, right? It's like flying yep. a drone or flying an airplane, right? You have to pick, you know, the, the route that it's going to yep. take, right? Yep. And by the time we're remapping the earth, we don't have to do that, right? Yep. You can serve weekly data or daily yep. data to every customer in the world at the right price point to support their applications, right? So today, the reason why the market is government and defense and intelligence and so on is because these are the guys that are willing to pay the most for the data. And that's why that's the market, because you have limited capacity. And if you have limited capacity, you're going to point it to the customers that are willing to pay the most, right? You're not going to point a $800 million satellite to a farmer in India that is willing to pay a couple of cents you know, to see yep. his farm, right? Yep. Because that makes no sense. So this is the market today. Now, 
the revolution that we will bring to this market, what we call the democratization of Earth observation data, is the fact that suddenly we will make anybody in the world able to afford satellite imagery for to support any decision that they need to make, right? Now, we won't be selling directly to the farmers of the world. We won't be right, selling directly right. to the, you know, to the end user probably. What we are building is a data platform that will be used by a ecosystem of value-added service partners and application developers that will take our data and you know fuse it with other things and transform it into the solutions that each of these industries need in each of the locations, right? Which might be very different. Because you know, today it's actually really hard to just like order images. First of all, as you mentioned, they're super expensive. And even it's like even images you already have. So it's not like, hey, you know, at SafeGraph, we'd love to buy images. But like to do that, we have to do like a BD deal. It's not like we can just like right. hit some API and put in some lot long and get the image if they have it, get that image at some reasonable price. Like, how do you see that changing, let's say, over the next few years? No, that, that's exactly true. And the, and the biggest issue is that the providers of satellite imagery today, they cannot even confirm that they have the capacity to sell you the image, right? Because they might have some higher priority customer come in at the last minute and require that they move the satellite somewhere else, right? Okay, but, so, but if the image or if they already took the image from a week ago, that's really what I'm talking about. You already took this image. It's yeah. sitting there on your server. You might as well sell it. Those um, should today, be easy, right? <laughs> it, today, you think it's like it's still hard to buy an image yeah. that like they have, and yeah. again, it's like we'll buy an image from six months ago. It doesn't even have to be that current, but you know, it's very, very hard to buy that today. Well, we're basically solving that problem, right? We have an API. You can log in, you know, use your credentials, and not only download archive data from the API directly, and but the other thing that you can do with us is you can actually task satellites. You can put orders for the future. Okay. You, you want to, you yep. can say, you know, these are the I. Want and I understand clear. why that should be expensive, right? So the tasking seems but, to be a lot more, much right, more expensive. Right, but it, it is yeah. it is expensive today, right? Because you're putting an order for the future, and today yeah. we have to manage the capacity. Now, I, and I'll tell you in a minute what we're doing about that, which is also very need to make it as affordable as possible. But on top of that, imagine that by the point I have enough satellites to remap the earth every week, I will be able to guarantee that I'm going to give you an image of any point on earth you're interested in yep. in a week, right? Yep. And by the time I'm remapping the earth every day, I will be able to guarantee that I'm going to give you an image in a day. Yeah. Right? Oh, so, of course. Well, then of course, then you also can guarantee you already have an image. From that's that, from true, that but there's, the there's stopped being a difference between ordering for the future and ordering for their archive. Correct. Right. Yeah. Because yep. for it's me, the it's essentially yep. the same. Right. Yep. So you're basically going to subscribe. And this is what you can do in our API now. You can go in and you can subscribe to the areas of the world that you're interested in. And, mm. and you can say, I want to subscribe. Some to sort all of time series on this. And I could see this right. every and, week for the next year or something. And so there's two ways in which you can engage with this API today. You can say, I want a kind of a best effort, you know, make the best effort to give me all of the imagery that I want of the future, you know, of this place. I'm subscribing, let's say, to this county and I want, you know, this county remapped every week. Just make your best effort to give me that, right? And we will. And the other thing that you can say is, is just give me a guarantee that you're going to give me all of this county remapped in high resolution in two weeks, right? And that second order is, of course, going to be more expensive. Yep. So what we built is a dynamic pricing system that basically allows or customers to choose how they want to interact with this API based on how much they're willing to pay to get the data and what guarantees they want. Now, what is interesting is as we build the constellation and we put more satellites in orbit, you know, we are providing a better service at a lower cost. And I think that's eventually when we have 
you know, weekly remaps by 2023, a lot of the applications in the world are going to be fine with weekly data, right? If you're monitoring agriculture, there's, yeah. you know, yeah. it's okay. Weekly data yeah. is okay. If you're monitoring airports, maybe, you know, you want daily data, right? Yeah. So for that, between the point in time when we have weekly, guaranteed weekly data, and we still don't have enough satellites to guarantee daily data, you might still have to pay more to get that. But then at some point, 2025, we have guaranteed daily data, you know, and at that point, yeah, some customers might still want data, you know, several times per day. Yeah. And those or they customers, might want something at night or something or, you right. know, or and, something a little different. Know, okay. Those guys are going to be paying more, right? But everybody yeah. else that just wants daily data is going to be able to get it basically from the catalog, from the archive. And that's how, you know, we think we will democratize this type of data or, you know, drive data too that comes on top of that. It seems like there's no doubt in my mind that the price of images of Earth are going to be dropping dramatically over the next five years. There's a lot of logic and other, there are other companies out there that are driving that price down as well. Besides for lowering the price of these images, how else do you think this data is going to become more accessible? I mean, the biggest adoption problem for Earth observation data to actually make an impact in, in the world, you know, in the way we make decisions, the biggest one is the price, right? Yeah. And this is one of the things- It's just so working. expensive today. It's, it's, it's basically yeah. unreasonable to use in most applications. Right. But once you solve that, let's say, I mean, we will be in a position to deliver this data at the right price point for every potential customer, right? And by the way, we're not going to charge the same for the data if the end use is agriculture than if the end use is defense and intelligence, right? We don't have to. But on top of that, what you need to do is you need to turn this data into something that is immediately useful to your customers. And this might not be, you know, the raw pixels that are being delivered today. Yeah. I think the future for us and for other data companies that are delivering data, you know, and that are expecting mainstream adoption is going to be putting layers of information and processing on top of the data so that you're making the lives of your customers. In this case, our customers are value-added service companies that will go and build solutions, right? But you're making their lives easier. So, okay, so in most cases, have- you, don't, you don't need the image anyway. You need the intelligence gleaned from the image and you could just give them the intelligence just to make, so to make their lives a little bit easier. Over time, I think that's, you know, that's the path is you start bundling information that makes it easier to build applications on top, right? So yep. in the end, you know, I might just want to understand where the field boundaries are or where the yield is going to be for a certain crop or what crop types there are, right, for agriculture. So it's great. If on top of the raw data, I'm getting, you know, layers of information, vector layers with this information, then that's great. It's making my life easier, right? Because in the end, I'm still going to have to take this and turn it into something that a farmer can use, right? Yeah. That it's not going to be a vector layer coming from, you know, from Satellogic. It's going to be, you know, something else, a prescription of, you know, what you need to go and do in the field, right? And I think that's the way we make it more accessible. That's the path that the industry needs to take. First, to provide affordable data. Second, to provide reliable data, right? The thing that where I can say, I want weekly data, I want daily data, and I know I'm going to get it, right? Which is not the situation today. So you want the data to be affordable, you want the data to be reliable, and you want the data to be easy to use, right, for the customers. And, you know, those are kind of drivers for where we see this going in the future. So you know, the way I see the satellite industry is like you have the attackers like Satellogic, like Planet, and then you maybe have the defenders like Airbus, Maxar, like it seems the attackers right now have the advantage over the defenders because you're taking advantage of all these new types of technology, et cetera. 
Like, how do you see the defenders ultimately like responding? How can they maintain their positions? I think there are niche markets. I mean, and people get mad because I call defense and intelligence uh, a niche market. Right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. There are, of course, there are huge companies built in the defense and intelligence sector, right? But there are markets that are always going to need the maxers and the digital lobes and you know the, the planet's high-resolution satellites, the sky sets. There are markets for that. There's always going to be markets for that because, you know, as I mentioned, when we have a guaranteed daily remap of the entire planet, these customers are still going to want data every hour, right? Or yep. every 30 minutes. Yeah, right? or so, a higher resolution photo or, or some or sort of Or a higher resolution, yeah. right? Or, yep. or they will want to deliver to, I don't know, to the battlefield in real time. I don't know. Yeah, so. Yep. I think there's a niche there in, in the defense and intelligence sector that will always support, you know, a large number of, and, and by the way, Maxer, you know, is the company it is, or, or Airbus is the company it is building for this market, right? So it's not a small yeah. market. It's a good yeah. market, right? Yeah. And I think it will continue to be a market that they dominate. So we are selling into this market because we have a lot of capacity in orbit because, you know, the customers want it, right? We have a lot of data. We have it at a low cost, right? So the customers want it. It's just the volume and the revisits and so on. But this is not or, you know, this is not our playing field, right? This is a market where we will always have some value add because, of course, if we have a daily remap of the entire planet, yes, every, you know, government in the world is going to want to have access to this data set, right? But yeah. On top of that, they're always going to want other things that we're not going to supply, that, you know, the Dove constellation from planet is not going to supply. And there's going to be a need for the Maxars and digital globes and the black skies and all these other companies that are focusing on the defense and intelligence sector. Right Now, but to still to, for you to get funded, you do have to serve also many of these national security organizations, governments, et cetera. Like, how do you think about this type of customer? Is it okay? is a really important customer for us because they're getting us funded. They're already buying. They know how to buy. They've been buying these images for, for decades, et cetera. And we're, you know, some of these new markets are not yet ready for us, or we haven't lowered the price enough for new markets. Or how do yeah. you think about this national security customer? Yeah, it's, it's kind of breaking out of the chicken and egg problem of building a new platform, right? Because, you know, I could have said, we're just going to focus on the commercial market. You know, we just need $300 million dollars. Let's go put the satellites in orbit, you know, finance the CapEx, put the satellites in orbit, build a platform, and then go and capture the applications yeah. once we have, you know, daily. But of course, you know, if I could have had, you know, $500 million in the bank ready to do that, you know, that might have been a plan. I think it would probably still be a bad plan, right? Because you you're, don't, not, you're not trying things out. You you're know, right. Yeah, you're yeah. not interacting with your customers. Yeah. You're not trying things out. You don't know how the product is going to behave until you put it in the market, right? You don't know if you're building the right thing. So I actually don't think that would have been the approach, right? I, personally, I don't come from the aerospace industry, right? I come from yeah. the software industry. You know, just don't build a software product that way, right? Like yeah. just, you know, and so I would have never thought about it that way. So what we see in the existing market, you know, in the government market is, yeah, these are the customers, right? The Fortune 100 companies that are today consuming Earth observation data. These are the customers, right? So we have to give them value. Because this is a way in which we validate our product. You know, to a couple of weeks ago, the NGA, the National Geospatial Agency, came out with a report saying, you know, this is how we evaluate the quality of the data that is being produced by commercial customers. And we were super happy because we got the gold medal and multispectral, right? But if you're not engaging with these groups, right, you don't know. You don't know that yeah. if you're building in a vacuum, you don't know, right? So for us, it, it has two advantages. One is, yes, it can fund 
you know, or help co-fund the deployment of the constellation that we need to build. But on the other hand, it allows us to be, you know, in the trenches, in touch with customers from day zero, right? And, and that's invaluable for a company. Okay, cool. Now, one of your biggest customers, maybe your biggest customer is Abdas, which is a data science company in China. How do you see that type of partnership expanding over time? Because they're, they're kind of like a VAR in some ways on top of your data. Yeah, and, and as I mentioned before, the main customer for a platform is going to be value-added resellers and you know, value-added partners that will take our data and they will know a specific use case very well, right? They will know the customer very well and they will adapt our data to that use case. In this case, Abdas is a you know, it's an analytics company in the province of Henan in China that is building applications to monitor medicinal herbs, right? Yeah. To monitor the crops, like the medicinal crops. And Henan is the province in China that I think produces 50% of the agricultural produce of the of the country, right? So right there by the Yellow River is a super fertile place. You know, it's and so this company is specializing in that. And that's great, right? Like, this is the kind of customer that we want. We can give yeah. them something that they can get in no other way, which is, you know, today we're giving them a monthly remap of the entire province of Henan in China and they're running their algorithms on top and finding the medicinal crops and, you know, figuring out how they're evolving and they're selling this data back to the government actually, yeah. is what it's doing in the province of China. Right? This is great. I mean, this is, this is the kind of customers that we want, right? It's, they have a long-term contract with them. You know, we're going to be delivering this data over Henan for them for a number of years and they can build a, you know, a business over a reliable data source, right? So this is a really good example. Now, you know, we have a recently announced an agreement with Palantir and it's this, the concept is very similar, right? We're going to yep. be giving them reliable data source that they can take to their own customers. They can run analytics on top and they can take to their own customers, you know, for their own good. And this is a five-year contract in this case, right? And for us, it's great. I mean, for us, it's a reliable source of revenue if you want, right? Recovering revenue for them is a reliable source of data, right? So, and they can specialize in the analytics and we can specialize in putting more satellites in orbit, collecting the data and, you know, making it easy to access. So. Okay. Now you're clearly an international company. I know you're, you're originally from Argentina. You have executives in Nashville and Seattle and Barcelona and Denver and Charlotte and France and Israel and Munich. And distributed workforces are pretty common nowadays in software companies. SafeGraph has a distributed wor- workforce, but it's pretty rare in satellite firms. Like, How do you see that as a strategic advantage? Yeah. I think you know from the beginning, you know, it's not like we did this on purpose, right? But from yeah. the beginning, I always knew that I come from, again, from the software industry. My previous companies were software companies. And I actually started all my other companies in Argentina and eventually had to take them out, right? Because you yeah. eventually need to put the sales force and the product strategy close to your customers. And, you know, so I, I was already used to the model where you have a distributed team because of that. And I think since the day zero, I thought about building a company you know, where you're essentially locating the pieces of the company in the most, you know, in the best place, right? In the yeah. ideal place for what you need to do. So I, I was actually in Mountain View, living in Mountain View when I had the idea of building Satellogic. And instead of hiring my engineering team in Silicon Valley, I decided to move back to Patagonia, okay, the middle of nowhere <laughs> to do that. And the reason for that really was two things. First is, you know, just the regulatory environment in the US to build space technology is insanely complicated, expensive, and difficult to navigate, right? And I had suffered some of this in my information security companies, uh, having to deal with ITAR 
And I kind of had sworn at the time that I didn't want to ever deal with ITAR again, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I knew, you know, I knew I didn't want to build my engineering team there. So I, I decided to go and build my engineering team in a very weird place in Patagonia, where there was an existing company that had been building satellites for NASA for a number of years for like historical reasons. And I said, hey, I'm going to take this seat here. I'm going to build my core engineering team around. Okay, so similar how like SpaceX was in Long Beach or something like that, because there are already yeah. all these like kind of companies that built rockets there. Right. And then, you know, the time came to start manufacturing our satellites at scale, right? And of course, I don't know how much you know about Argentina, but it's really not the place where you want to put a manufacturing facility. Yeah. Yeah. Importing stuff, exporting stuff. Yep. You need something more asset light in Argentina, right? Yeah. Right. So we moved that to a free trade zone in Uruguay, which is across the border from where we had our office in Buenos Aires. Like it's a 30 minute flight, right? Yep. And it has none of the issues of doing it in Argentina. Now, when we started putting together a sales team, you know, of course, you don't want a sales team in South America, right? You're far from everyone in the world. Yeah. So we started to put together a sales team in the US, right? So, you know, uh, you see how this is going. Every yeah. time we decided to you know, create a new function in the company. We thought about where is the right place to do that. So we were about to build our analytics and product team. And, you know, the U.S. wasn't really the right place for a number of reasons. You know, cost was one. The ability to attract the right talent and maintain it over time was another one. So I decided that, you know, Barcelona was actually a really good location to do that because it's a great place to attract talent from all of Europe. And yeah, who doesn't uh, so want to live in Barcelona, right? Exactly. Amazing place. So, yeah, exactly. You're young, you know, it's like great weather, great food, good, you know, great standard of living. So that's why we set up in Barcelona for product analytics team, right? And so we were very distributed before the pandemic hit, right? And we already had all the processes in place to work as a distributed company. And I think, you know, after the pandemic hit, we just went all in and said, look, we're never going back to the model of, you know, concentrating people around offices and let's just exploit the nature of a distributed workforce. And, uh, you know, and on the other hand, we're building a satellite company, right? It's going to be having customers all around the world, right? Or yeah. satellites kind of be located on top of one place. They're roaming the earth, right? So kind of made sense from that perspective. Too. Now, I know you mentioned you're headquartered in a free trade zone in Uruguay. Like, what is the advantage of being in a free trade zone? The main advantage is I can buy components or equipment anywhere in the world, have it shipped directly door to door to my warehouse without going through customs, essentially, just gets into my warehouse. So that's amazing. Okay. So if you want to get it out of your warehouse, maybe there's some custom things, but getting it into the warehouse, it's not like you have like the Uruguay customs team, like going through everything. Actually, I can get it out. If I get it out of Uruguay, I don't even have to go to customs again. Right. So I can do the whole thing. Okay. Got it. Okay. So it's, it's kind of, you know, having a manufacturing facility in a land that is, you know, free from essentially literally free from, you know, trade restrictions, which makes it very simple to operate a global supply chain with, you know, just in time to go and yes. build expensive things, right? Okay. Um, that makes a lot of sense. Now, when we talked with Will Marshall, who's the CEO of Planet Labs on World of DAS, he was kind of insistent that Planet was a data company, not a satellite company or a space company. Do you see satellite, the satellite logic in a similar way or? hundred percent. I think, you know, I think Will and Planet have, have the right vision about the future of this industry and where we need to go. And we see it the same way. I mean, the customers in the end don't care if we're operating satellites or we're, you know, operating drones or we're sending yep. people with a magnifying glass to take yep. a look yep. at something, yep. right? Like they could care less, right? Where we get the data. If we get it from mobile phones or we get it from satellites, right? They want a problem solved. 
Right? They want a data set that is the closest to you know solving the problem as possible. And you know, this is one thing that is very important. This is one place where I think not coming from the aerospace industry, you know, has helped me and has helped us, which is from the beginning, we were focused on solving problems, right? And if we had to build a satellite to do it, then we build a satellite. If we actually had to completely redesign satellites from the ground up to do it, then we do it, right? But if yeah. we don't have to, you know, we're not going to, right? I mean, we're not in love with the technology first and then, you know, trying to see what we're going to use it for. You know, we are really building the satellites to go and solve real problems, right? And I mean, you've mentioned this in your podcast several times. There are not so many examples of successful data service companies, right? And But I think in this domain in particular, when you think about planet Earth, you know, the value of the data set that we will be collecting collectively, right? Planet, us, you know, the people that is building the infrastructure today to go and collect data of the planet in high frequency, in high resolution, and make it accessible, you know, at the right price point, you know, this is really going to change the world, right? It's really going to change the way we make decisions. It's going to level the playing field. It's going to get rid of information asymmetries and make actually the world economy more efficient, right? So, you know, it's, I, I think the value here is huge and the value is in the data, right? Nobody cares if it's coming, where it's coming from. It just happens that satellites are the right tool for the job, right? Yeah. Low Earth orbiting satellites are the perfect tool for this job of monitoring Earth. Okay, yeah, really, really interesting. Now, you know, you, you mentioned these VARs that you work with the analytics companies, Abdes, Palantir, et cetera. There are also a lot of other data companies in the geospatial world. Obviously, Safecraft sells geospatial data. There's CoStars, CoreLogic. There's tons of other data companies. Like, how do you see working with these data companies? That's our goal, right? Making our APIs, you know, easy to use, making our catalogs easy to access so that everybody can use them, right? Coordinating on data source. Actually, you know, we started a while ago to coordinate our APIs and the way we're managing our, our spatial temporal catalogs or stack catalogs to make it you know, a common framework with other companies in the industry, because, you know, it is about making, you know, this data as easy to fuse with other data sources as possible, right? To solve problems. Again, I'm, I'm expecting our customers are going to be using your data, are going to be using our data, are going to be using everybody else's data, right? To solve their problems. Yeah. Now, you guys have recently gone public. Why choose going public now as opposed to, you know, waiting? Or I think a lot of companies maybe in your space maybe have gone public a little bit later in their life cycle. What was the advantage of going public earlier in the life cycle? Yeah, I think, I think there's two things. The first one is we saw this is an opportunity to fully fund our business plan, right? To be able to go out and build our constellation of satellites. And we could have continued to fund the company in the private market, of course, but being on the public market, I think it also gives us you know, a platform to grow that is harder to do, that harder to replicate on the private on the private yep. side, right? So I think those were part of the of the. Is that because you might want to make strategic acquisitions or something like that, or? Correct. I think you know. I think we in our future there's both organic growth if you want and some inorganic growth that's going to have yep. to happen. But on top of that, you know, you mentioned this. Even though we're building satellites that are you know a thousand times less than Maxart, you know, worldview satellite, this is still a capital intensive industry. Yeah. Yep. Right. So we still will need to continue to raise money in the future. And just having access you know, to the public markets to do that, it just makes a lot of sense for the speed of execution that come next to us, right? We're at a stage where we've validated the technology, validated the product market fit, 
you know, we have revenue, we have customers, we just need to put 200 satellites in orbit as fast as we can, right? And I think this was the right platform for us to do that. Okay, interesting. A couple of personal questions. So Uruguay is probably one of the more stable countries in the world, but like right next door where you're from, Argentina has maybe <laughs> not been as fortunate and has had maybe a lot of constant political change over the years. Like how has that shaped your thinking of being a founder coming from Argentina? Look, I think it totally does, right? I think you'll see this in Argentinian entrepreneurs in general, and there are many, many examples. You know, we tend to be people that is very resourceful, that is very kind of stubborn and fights, yeah. <laughs> you know, with whatever tools we have, you know, for as long as we can. I think that's all, you know, that's all stuff you learn from early on, right? I, today in the US, you know, you're worried about inflation. I, <laughs> right, I remember... Right. Yeah, I remember I six percent inflation or something. Right, six percent inflation. I remember being eight years old, nine years old, and you know, and having two thousand percent inflation. Right, (laughs) uh, you know, and I remember going to a supermarket and and just having someone whose work was to like just put the new prices on things, working full time, right? Because they were do one turn in the supermarket updating the prices, and then they would have to do another one, right? Updating it again. So you know, I think those things prepare you for the you know, making decisions in an uncertain world. And I think, you know, that ends up being speaking to a resiliency of Argentinian entrepreneurs. I also think that there are other things in the, you know, that you have to unlearn, right, to be successful. And that's a lifelong process. <laughs> now, your wife, Paula, is a fiction writer, and she writes a lot about futuristic technology, science fiction, she even has a book called Dark Constellations. It seems like you guys are like very kind of together on your journey. You must have like really interesting dinner conversations. <laughs> yeah, you know, we feed in each other. I'm I'm Paula's biggest fan from the very, very early days. She started, you know, before she was even a published author, but she's developed an amazing career. She's her books are doing really, really well. And, and yeah, she's very interested in a lot of things that I'm also interested in with a complete different perspective yeah right? so yeah. she she will look at things with a completely different perspective a completely different eye and that's amazing and I has think, that helped you be a ceo something like like using that creativity or anything or i continue to be an avid reader of science fiction you know yeah. i think and i actually think some of the biggest philosophers of our time are science fiction writers right you know because they're really thinking about the future in ways yeah. And the impact of what's happening today in ways that, you know, take more time to permeate into, you know, other more established circuits like academia and so on. So I'm, I continue to be an avid reader. And I think, you know, it also, you know, on a personal level, it's also worked very well because the fact that Paula is interested in the stuff that I'm doing, she's, she's interested in the future of technology, she's interested in space and the things, you know, it has really helped because, you know, being married to the CEO of a startup, it's, you know, it's not an easy feat in itself. So, right. That's uh, true. It's tough, to, it's tough to be married to a CEO of a startup. Hopefully right. my wife's listening right now. Last yeah. question we ask all of our guests, what is the conventional wisdom or advice that is generally bad advice? I think the worst one is don't reinvent the wheel, you know, because sometimes, you know, sometimes when the environment changes, when the situation changes, you have to go back to first principles. You have to go back to thinking, okay, how would I build a wheel if I started, yeah. you know, if I started today, right? And not, you know, I don't know, 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago, right? How would I create a wheel today? 
And I think that's, you know, that's super important. That's what's allowed someone like Elon Musk to go and make a dent in the, you know, launch business, right? That's what has allowed us to go and build satellites that are, you know, a thousand times cheaper than, than traditional satellites. It's sitting down and, and going back to first principles, you know, a little bit like a small kid, you know, asking stupid questions, right? Like, yeah. you know, why? <laughs> why are you doing that? Yeah. And why? And until you get to the bottom of it, right? And nobody knows why, right? Like nobody knows. And if nobody knows, then you found something that maybe it makes sense to, to change. So I don't buy the don't reinvent the wheel. Okay, great. That, that's great. I love that. I love that. Now, I, I follow you on Twitter. Is that where generally we should point everyone to or where should people find you on the internet? Sure. My Twitter handle is Earl Kman, but you can also write, just write me an email at ek at satellogic.com and that should get you to, to me. Okay, awesome. EK, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us on World of Das. Thanks, Ari. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of Das, and Das is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. 